0: Hello, beauties, and welcome back to Aesthetic Chat with Kiki. I'm your host, Kiana Gamble, and this is yet another episode of the podcast. I am so excited to have Hermine Warren on to give you all of her pearls. Enjoy, beauties. Let's just jump right into it and talk about how you, you know, ventured into aesthetics. Interesting
1: question, actually. My journey into aesthetics was not at the beginning part of my career. I've had multiple careers in my life, although I've been a nurse now for over 40 years. I had left nursing for a good 15 of them and ironically went into the television business. And at the end of that stretch, I felt, what do I want to do with my life? And I thought I have always embraced facial artistry and facial beauty and I really wanted to get into something where I felt I could help people, men and women, find their very best selves. So I sought to educate myself into facial aesthetics. I took many, many courses. And then I just plowed into it and have been in aesthetics now for 18 years. It's been a really incredible journey. and. I really have been the happiest I've ever been career-wise in my multiple careers in this particular phase of my life. I feel I've really hit my sweet spot. Very
0: cool. So it sounds like you were a nurse and then you kind of stepped back and then you went into television which is a little bit different, which is very cool. What kind of nurse were you when you had started out? And then how was that transition back in? Did you end up going back to school to get your advanced practice degree and then venture into aesthetics? Or kind of organically, how did getting your advanced practice degree unfold?
1: It actually was somewhat organic. When I was in my baccalaureate program, it was a beta program. It was the first of its kind and I graduated with a Bachelor of Science in Nursing and a nurse practitioner degree. So I was in a pool of people who had their NP degrees before there was even an exam to give you certification as a nurse practitioner. And I graduated with a Bachelor of Science in Nursing and a pediatric nurse practitioner. So I was a PMP. And I went into nursing almost from the very beginning as an advanced practice nurse. I worked as a pediatric nurse practitioner for quite a while. I then stepped back from that and went into just some research, which was very challenging on the NICU, which is the neonatal intensive care unit. And then after that, I went to Colorado for my master's of science in nursing and that was a focus on mother-baby. But then I decided I wanted to become a nurse midwife. So I went back and got into a program in New York City at Downstate Medical Center. I became a certified nurse midwife and worked at USC in at Women's Hospital. And it was interesting because I had been given the ability to do an internship at USC, because you have to do a three-month internship before you can actually practice. And so I had done it at USC. And at the conclusion of that internship, I was offered a position. And so I decided to move from Colorado to California and become a nurse midwife. I did that for quite a while. And then I had stepped back a little bit I was a head nurse at St. Joe's, and I ran their labor delivery and postpartum units. And then I said, whoa, okay, what am I doing here? And it was really interesting whether it was a mini midlife crisis, I don't know. But I just was like not finding my happiness within the nursing arena. And so I just stepped out of it. And like I said, I mean, being an executive vice president in television post-production was just one of my many different career moves that I made. And what I am proud of myself is that everything I've done in my life, I've been very successful. But as I was marching along and not doing any kind of nursing, I realized that as I was getting older, I wanted to find something that really would resonate with me and make me really happy. And like I said earlier on in the conversation, the happiest I have ever been has been doing what I do. And so as I proceeded to do that, I decided I wanted a little bit further education. And while I've been doing aesthetics, I had gone back and got my doctorate in nursing practice. So I was really thrilled that I was able to do that. It felt really rewarding to me and just something that I thought, quite honestly, when I was hooded the day I got my degree, I thought my mother, looking down from heaven, would go, I knew you'd always be a doctor, <laughs> you <know>? but uh, <laughs> she would have been very happy for me. And like I said, everything I've done within the aesthetic arena has made me really thrilled from publishing to teaching to training to just really enriching myself and learning on a daily basis. So I really love this area and I love the people I've met within it.
0: You have one of the coolest nursing career journeys. It sounds like you dabbled in a little bit of everything. I've heard of those programs where you go, you know, from bachelor's right to nurse practitioner degrees. It's very cool that you were a part of, you know, that kind of that pilot cohort of people doing that. It sounds like you also, most of your experiences were really like neonates, um, pediatrics and then women's health. So that's also very, very cool. I'm just in awe of your journey. I think that it's really, really incredible that you are a lifelong learner, um, I would like you to touch a little bit on this just because you have gone back to school, you have multiple degrees, you have touched a little bit on the fact that you do do research and that you do love kind of all the aspects that are aesthetics. Kind of to touch on the that mental component of needing to be a lifelong learner and needing to be up to date on, you know, current things.
1: Well, interesting that you would ask me this because I'll tell you something, it's really something that I have observed within the field of people coming into aesthetics currently. And it's really different than how I feel I came into it. When I came into aesthetics, I came into it truly because I was searching as well. Like, what can I do? What can I be? And I felt that I needed more academics to support my journey. I think that when you have a practice that's not evidence-based, you don't really have a great practice. It's really what nurses have been criticized for way back in the day, that we were just sheep, that we just did what the doctors told us, that evidence base behind you, it sort of informs you how to do what you're doing. So if there was an initial evidence-based article that said, we should do neuromodulators and do 20 units in between the eyebrows, and there was a reason for it, then that made sense to do it different than somebody who just said, oh, I would put a few units here, a few units here, do this, do that. And so in becoming interested in going back for my doctorate, honestly, the one thing, the one pearl I got out of it was the fact that science really does guide our hand in how we do aesthetics. It's not just guesswork, it's science. And I felt that not only was I happy that I did it, but I feel like I am that role model, that ambassador for education, because I think I am one of the older people who went back. I graduated with my doctorate in nursing practice at 62. and That's amazing. People who say to me, I can't go back to school I went back to school and had a full-time practice and made it happen. I graduated with honors, summa cum laude, and I'm not saying that that means that everybody has to do it that way, but I committed to it. And the thing that I see, like what's my biggest challenge that I face in the industry, it's people coming into the industry who are driven by social media excitement, which I think is great, but... They feel that they can see one, do one, learn one, open a practice one, and teach one all in the same week. And it's frightening to me. I've done so many trainings where people have never put a needle in their hand. And when I walk into their practice and I say, okay, what are we doing today? And they go, oh, I'd like to do temples or tear troughs. Two very high risk areas for ocular blindness. And so what is informing the new group of people that are out there? And I think it's incumbent on everybody, whether it's the OGs like myself or just some of the people who have been in it for a while, to really take stock that we are a community. We learn by teaching others. It's why I so sought to be a trainer and to speak and to be able to be out there. Uh, right Currently, right now, Dr. George Baxter Holder and myself teach a foundational course through AmSPA. And it's really been exciting because you can't go from the ground floor to the 10th floor without passing nine floors in between. You can think you can, but you can't. And to me, the greatest injectors are the ones who really say, okay, I'm learning. I want a mentor. I want somebody to help me get better. I will be better. I will be best. I will continue to rise, but not I am an expert because I saw two Patreons and three classes on social media, and I saw somebody inject somebody, and it looked good to me, so now I can do it. It frightens me, and that to me is my biggest obstacle, but also why I embrace education. I am a co-faculty member with Dr. Chris Sorek in his anatomy cadaver lab and we do a cadaver lab every month and every month i still learn you know it's it's his mantra is where it's all at the fear of injection is the fear of anatomy so many people have no sense of what's under the skin so it's really important to take it so seriously and i think that the people that take it so seriously will be our next level of injectors our next whole Group of people who will take over ultimately when I'm no longer in the field, but the people who are just in it for the glory, for the fame, for the I love it, I want to walk the walk, but I don't want to talk the talk. You know, it's like I think it's really a problem. And I think I see that, and so do many of my colleagues. And we're trying desperately to have meetings like I SPAN, the International Society of Plastic Surgical plastic, aesthetic, and surgical nurses, and just different areas and different conferences where people can network and meet and really understand in a deeper level what it is they're doing and the risks that they're taking.
0: You made some great points. With that being said, I know that there it is a huge concern. It's very scary for those, even I'm very new in the industry, but All the people that do just kind of pop up, think they can take one course and think that they're, you know, that expert, that certified. So, you know, the kind of the conversation and a lot of what's happening now is a lot of people are going back if they're registered nurses to get that advanced practice degree. Myself, I'm getting my DNP right now. So I'm in my first year. In your opinion, do you feel like that is where the industry is headed? I know that, you know, there is lots of discussion that, Eliminating the ability for nurses to inject may one day happen. So do you recommend that people do go back, get that advanced practice degree, get their CANS, kind of do all of those things?
1: Well, a hundred percent, but for the right reason, not the wrong reason. I think the CAN certification is terrific. It's the only one out there right now that is acceptable and is accredited nationally. It just got its accreditation. But I will say to you that in terms of an advanced practice arena, I think every RN unequivocally needs to be a nurse practitioner without a doubt to be able to have that advanced scope of practice, to be able to safely and conscientiously do a good faith exam on every patient, regardless of what field of medicine they're in, because that's the way that it's going. I had gone for my DMP because as it were, the powers that be said, well, at one point you will not be able to move forward as a nurse practitioner unless you have your master's. Well, I had gotten my master's a long time, so that wasn't an issue. But I felt as I was getting older, I better get my DMP now because I don't want to be caught with my pants down by my ankles when they say you can't practice without your DMP because not everybody will be grandfathered in and who knows who that would be. Now, as it turns out, typically it takes a while to move mountains. So that hasn't been the course. And that's been quite a number of years already that they're working on it. But I think it is absolutely the direction that people are going. Advanced certifications, advanced education. It's what brings nursing more in parity with MDs. And I can tell you whether this is Fair or not, MDs who see nurses with advanced practice certifications regard them differently than doctors who just see nurses with RN degrees. And it's not just an RN because I hate when people say, oh, I'm just an RN. So am I. I'm just an RN, but I'm an RN that's gone for further advancement in education. So I hate when people put RN in the pejorative, but they have to realize where it falls out on the pecking order. And when you do not have a say into how you're going to evaluate, how you're going to deal with your patient, how you can take care of your patient, then it puts you on a lower level than an RN who can. And so I think, yes, it's it's critical. I do
0: agree with you. I think that everything that you're saying is really great. Even being in this industry going on only a year and a half, you do face a lot of obstacles not having your advanced practice degree, not being able to perform your own good faith exams, not being able to manage complications solely on your own or, you know, do those things as quickly as possible. So I think it is really, really important. I also think it's amazing that you went back in your 60s. So there's really no excuse for anybody to not be able to go back, whether it's been too much time out of school, whether they're running their own full practice, whether they're too busy, like there's really no excuse.
1: I mean, I was at a school for 30 years when I went back. And I'll tell you, this is a funny story. It's pathetic, but it's funny. When I went back the first week I was in my DMP program, one of the assignments was to do a PowerPoint. And I said in my mind, what the F is a PowerPoint? What is it? <laughs> I had no, like, what is it? I mean, I, it's it's interesting but what education does is it keeps you aware and it keeps you current. And I think that's what's important. I'll give you a story, a brief one, but it really brings it home. I have a colleague who's been in this business now over 35 years. She considers herself a master injector. She has not gone to a conference in probably 25 years. How, how much of a master injector is that? So much has changed. Products change within our tool chests technique changes all the time, awareness changes, areas to inject safer have changed over and over again from using a needle to using a cannula to using a needle and a cannula to using backfilled insulin syringes to using this to using that. It's it's changing ever most, just as we even are speaking right now, something new is coming out to make it safer to make it better. And when you're not academically informed. It's like the person who trains, but doesn't inject, or the person inject, the person who injects and doesn't train. They both make the strongest component for someone we want out in the field. You know, someone said to me, when you finally retire, are you going to still teach? And I said, no. And they said, why not? And I said, because who would, I wouldn't want to be taught by someone who doesn't know The product that they're showing me. Even if they have a long history of who they are, it's what makes somebody a valuable asset to our field is somebody who not only is training, but who is also learning, who is also injecting, so that I can say to a patient when I'm injecting them, yes, I know this for a fact because I do this and I've had this done to me. Or you can say to a trainee that you're training, yes, this is how I do it. This is how I do it with great outcome. This is how I wouldn't do it with bad outcome. And so that's what makes it very different. And that's what makes for a strong person in the field, which I feel I still currently am. But, you know, at some point I'll be handing that baton to a newer generation of injectors and I want them to be safe.
0: I actually love that you bring up that point that, you know, even if you've been doing it a long time, but you're not staying up to current things, how relevant is that? How safe is that? Is that really best practices? You know, I think that's a really, really great point that you bring up. What is your favorite procedure or product or
1: something to train on? Great question. To me, uh, when I look at a face, I look at a face panoptically, meaning the whole face, I don't just look at a line or a wrinkle or a dent or a divot. And most change takes place in the mid face. That's where it starts. That's your problem. The pre-jowl sulcus, the jowls people complain about, that's the symptom of the problem. When people come into my office and say, inject me down here, I hate these jowls. That's why so many people in their late 50s to 70s look like a bulldog. They look horrible. People round them out. And what we know very much from way back in the data is that an inverted triangle of beauty from lateral canthus to lateral canthus to mentum is really a sign of youth and beauty. And that as we get older, it becomes lateral canthus to lateral canthus to jowl to jowl. You look like a quadrangle. And if you fill that up and that's all you do, you lose that inverted triangle of beauty and it's aging. You can tell somebody's age just from that. They don't have that nice, deep point of the triangle. So what I love the very best to inject is the mid face. I think that there are a variety of ways to do it. I used to only do it with needle. Now I do it more with cannula, but there's the lateral part of the Zygoma, and then there's the cheekbone area, and then there's the anterior medial cheek, which usually drops. And so, if you can elevate that whole area and you can really make it nice and smooth and beauteous, meaning that you're not filling up that cheek area so much that it looks like a failed breast augmentation when someone smiles, but it just gives you a really Lilting, lift up in a way you're manipulating the SMAS when you do that because and the SMAS is the superficial muscular aponeurotic system. But it's what surgeons usually do when they're doing a facelift that they're pulling up that whole sheath of fat cells and elastin because that's what creates a facelift. So I love doing mid face very much. So and then complemented by doing the preauricular area, which is that area right in front of the ear, the trachis of the ear, the little thing in the ear, for those who don't know what trachis is, and I don't say that facetiously, but that area in front, the preauricular area, can be very shallow. And if that's filled up, that also creates a lifting. So those two areas combined will change how people see shallowness in their tear trough area, will change how people see their jowl area, will see change how people see just their whole face seeming to drop. And so that's my favorite area for sure.
0: That whole area that you speak of is so transformatory. Um, So a hundred percent agree. That's very amazing. I did take the cadaver course back in San Fran after doing the dissection, doing kind of the injections, getting the opportunity to kind of inject all over the face, even those zones that I personally don't inject that be being, you know, temples noses and you know, glabella. Do you, take on that risk in your practice? Are you actively doing those higher risk areas or because of the anatomy, because of the cadaver courses, you kind of steer clear?
1: A hundred percent never in the glabella, a hundred percent never in the nose. I do inject temples and every time I do it, I find that my tush clenches so much that I feel like it's going to come out of my body, but I do it and I do it confidently because I just really am observing how product goes in. I will do it with filler. I've also done it multiple times with Sculptra. And I don't do a lot. And I don't seek to do tons because I don't want people to look like light bulbs. If you fill it up too much, that area, you look bizarre. But in general, very, very, very high-risk areas, which ironically is not the temple, although, yes, it is a high-risk area, because of its ability to communicate with the central retinal artery. The biggest area, believe it or not, that has been cited for blindness is the nasolabial folds. And glabella also is a very high risk area as is the nose. So no, I don't do those at all. Don't wanna have that issue, don't wanna be a hero, don't really care. I send them to colleagues who want to do it, but it's not for me.
0: Gotcha. Do you utilize ultrasound in your practice as well? Like, so when you're, when you're filling the temporal
1: region, are you visually seeing the different layers? Good question. And I hate to say that I have not purchased an ultrasound yet, but I do believe, and this is like, do as I say, not as I do, that for most practices, it is not only the way of the future, it is here right now. Why I haven't gotten one, and I'll tell you what I use in a second. But why I haven't gotten one yet is I am the only person in my practice, and I'm just trying to, in my mind's eye, figure out how I'm going to do an ultrasound treatment to see where a where an artery might be living when I'm the only person because it's the ultrasound, it's the iPad. It, there's a whole lot of things and. If you notice, many people who do the ultrasound treatments have an assistant. I do not. So it makes it cumbersome. What I've been using is I use the AccuVein, and Acuvains don't show you where arteries are, but they show you where veins, and usually in most areas, the artery lives with the vein. So when I shine that AccuVein on the area, I can see clearly where the veins are, and I inject in areas that don't have any vasculature that I'm seeing. doesn't mean... There might not be something there, but that's what I'm, I'm doing it.
0: That's actually a great point. And in our clinic, we also do not use ultrasound yet just because of the learning curve specifically, as well as the fact that you do need a second set of hands to hold all the devices.
1: Now, from what I've seen, you can do it. You don't actually need a second set of hands, but you have to be really aware of where you place your iPad where you're looking, what you're doing. And I, I do believe I will have one within the year, but I just don't have one yet. And so I'd like to bring home for anybody who listens to this podcast, I do believe it is some, it is part of our practice that is going to be standard, not out of the box. Mm-hmm. So I agree. I every practice should have one. And shame on me, I guess, for not having one yet, but I'm trying to orchestrate how to do it properly for me.
0: The AIA courses, they do have the ultrasound courses. Have you had quite a bit of experience with the ultrasound? Have you felt like it's actually fairly easy to pick up in terms of navigating what you're seeing and being able to orient well with it?
1: What I believe is that it is not easy to pick up, but I don't think anything is. I don't think injection is, you know, so let's mm-hmm. go back to what we do. Just because you stick a needle in someone's face doesn't mean that that's good technique. I think that the ultrasound is doable for sure. And I think it's a, a learning curve for sure. Like anything else, the injector I started out being in 2004 is not the injector I am in 2022, almost 23. Lightyear is different. So it's the same thing. And yes, I've taken an ultrasound course. I know how to use the ultrasound, but I would need to ramp up too. And it's just what you do. It's what we all do when we learn new technique, whether it's laser, whether it's threads, whether it's injections, whether it's cannula. The first time I ever used a cannula, I was a disaster. I was sweating from every orifice known to man. The <laughs> who I brought as the model said, Well, come on, get it in. And I said, I can't get it in. I can't get it in. And I was embarrassed because here I am, this hot shot injector, and I stunk at doing cannulas. And so what I did is I made myself buy 100 cannulas. And I said, every person who comes in, I'm going to use a cannula no matter what. And I'm going to get good at it. And I did that. And after the 100th cannula, believe it or not, my practice now is about 98% cannula, it's what I feel the most comfortable with, but it's the commitment. So commitment to ultrasound is the same thing. If someone gets it and expects to magically pull it out of the box and they can use it, they're, they're doing some kind of some fairy dust. You have to use it every day. Dr. Steve Weiner, who I think is really an expert in ultrasound, when he first decided to delve into it, and make it a focal point of his career, he was using it every day for hours a day, for years at a time. I mean, that's why he has the depth of knowledge that he has right now with it, because it became a passion of his. But you can't just pick up any tool and expect to be an expert. So that's my answer to that. But I think it's certainly doable for sure.
0: I love that perspective and I love how you tie it into the fact that nothing within healthcare, nothing within this industry is easy and that it's all needs to be practiced. You know, it's not something that you're just gonna pick up and be amazing at. So I love that you touched on all of those different points. You've really actually covered all of my questions. So I will give you a little bit of, you know, a little section of time to discuss anything you want to discuss for the new injector, any type of advice that you haven't already given us, just because you have given us such great advice. So if there's any last minute pearls that you want to share with the listeners, now is kind of your chance.
1: Okay. So I would say that my advice for becoming a great injector is unequivocally, without a doubt, every injector should take a dissection cadaver class. And I think that Dr. Surix is by far the best out there because not only is he dissecting, but everybody else is also dissecting and learning and having a hands-on experience. If you don't know what's under the skin, I would not want to be your patient going into that skin because we have a network on the face that's so filled with vasculature That you have to really have an understanding what it is and how the skin talks to the fat pads and the fat pads to the muscle and the muscle to the bone. And so number one, an anatomy cadaver class. Number two, slow and easy wins the race. There's no great need for an injector to be a fast injector, to be a hasty injector and constantly take education Constantly look to people in the industry who you respect to work with you and to mentor you and to help you. I always say to people that my Instagram handle is hooked on fillers. DM me if you have any questions. I'm here to help. The only way we get better is it's really true community over competition. I do believe that training people and making them better makes patient adverse events lesser. And that's the key. Nobody's going to take my patient from me. If my patient's going to leave me, they're going to leave me no matter what. So I think we need to really look out for the people coming into the field, for the people in the field. And I would lastly say this as my final pearl, don't ever do something because you feel pressured by a patient. If it feels wrong in your gut, do not do it. And the easiest way to say it is, I really don't feel comfortable doing that, and I don't want to do a procedure that might hurt you. And most patients will ultimately break the chain of thought and go, oh, okay, do not do something just because you want to make a patient happy when you feel uncomfortable doing it, because the uncomfortableness you feel could end up with a disastrous result. And so that's what I would say. And I love this field. I welcome everybody who comes into this field. Please use me as a resource. And I really hope that it continues to grow in a very healthful, fabulous way as it's been growing.
0: Absolutely amazing advice, Hermine. Thank you. Thank you again for coming on the podcast.
1: My pleasure.
0: Again, thank you so much, Hermine, for all of your great advice for my listeners. It was an absolute pleasure to chat with you. If you are at all interested in attending one of the cadaver courses Hermine discussed, hosted by Dr. Chris Surik, herself, and Dr. George Baxter Holder, use Hermine's code, Hermine100, for $100 off. To receive regular updates on the podcast, follow the podcast Instagram, which is at aesthetic.chatwithkiki. To follow my Instagram, it's at aestheticnurse.kiki. On the website, aestheticnurskiki.com. you can listen to the podcast. You can also find some fun apparel. If you use code BEAUTY20, receive 20% off on my website, aestheticnurskiki.com. So go check that out. All right, beauties, until next time,
1: have a great day. Bye.